networks of paths that make up what is now referred to as the Great Trading Path are a cultural and historical treasure for the state of North Carolina. These roads are the basis for the exploration and settlement of the North Carolina frontier. Today's highways and side streets incorporate sections of these old paths and form a continuous bond with our past. Many modern towns and cities were formed on the basis of these old roads and their usefulness along them as rest stops and trading stations. Join us today as we explore North Carolina's original Main Street as part of our three-part series exploring the sights, sounds, and people of the North Carolina trail system. Welcome to Connecting the Docks, a podcast sharing true stories from the old North State using materials found in the state archives of North Carolina. Taking us through these stories and more, here's your host, John Horan. Hello, I'm John Horan, and welcome back to Connecting the Docks. Uh, in our first episode of our Year of the Trail series, we took a hike and discussed the origins of the North Carolina Trails program, and specifically the Mountains to Sea Trail. Today, we're continuing our series by looking at the oldest trail system in the state, the Indian Trading Paths. And we started uh, this recording with a quote from Rebecca Taft Fletcher's 2008 article titled, The Trading Path and North Carolina which is found in the Journal of Backcountry Studies. Joining me today, we've got Katie Crickmore. Hi. And uh, we'll just get started right away, and I'll ask you this question. What are Indian trading paths? Well, the short answer is that they were a series of established trails and paths across the state and the nation uh, that were used originally by the American Indian population for travel and trading and were later used by colonists. Well, yeah, and, and, and so that is a, that's a good short summation. Yeah. <laughs> what is the long answer? Uh, well, yeah, the longer answer begins uh, kind of uh, farther beyond the uh, human element. They, a lot of these trails began as natural paths for animals to find food and water. Uh, and over time, humans began using these trails as well. As well. Um, I mean, if you think about it, when humans are plotting out where to get food and water, they're going to take the easiest route. They're going to uh, to go the the smoothest travel, the easiest you know places to cross in the river. It just makes sense that humans will follow those, and that's what happened. Uh, the American Indians uh, kind of made these more complete. They uh, started using them for travel, hunting, gathering of food, recreation, commerce, communication, uh, what have many other aspects of everyday life. Yeah, it makes sense that they would they would you know humans then and humans now we like paths of least yeah. resistance <laughs> it makes sense mm -hmm. and these paths they connected different tribes and regions uh, and they were used for centuries before the arrival of the europeans so they not only facilitated trade but they also played a significant role in the cultural exchange between different tribes uh, and through these paths the tribes they shared their languages their customs and traditions with one another and then that continued on when the colonizers started using them as well yeah yeah, and so how many of these trading paths have we identified? So that could be another kind of short answer, long answer one. A, a lot of these paths um, were kind of shorter connections between other paths. So there could be like thousands, honestly, just the little ones. But over time, uh, historians were able to identify 18 major Indian trading paths in North Carolina prior to 1775. And how, you know, are these, are these paths, are they still used today or what's going on there? Yeah, so 
it's actually really interesting once you're aware of these paths. All, it, all of our current day connectivity stems from these original trails. Uh, like as people moved along um, the Piedmont, through the Low Country, uh, like the rivers were changing, the coastlines were changing. These established trails were the main pathways. They were the main streets that were used uh, in North Carolina. Uh, the European colonizers used these trails after they arrived, like we've mentioned. Uh, they, and there's, all, there's this theory that, you know, Indian trails determine how and where settlers penetrated North Carolina and, where, and were the only roads worthy of mention in the Piedmont, according to Douglas L. Wright's 1957 book, The American Indian in North Carolina. Uh, and so over time, European colonizers, they transformed these trails into stagecoach routes and then railroads. And then finally into the system of roads and interstate highways that we have today. So uh, the land on which we, we live, work, travel, you name it, they've been shaped by the indigenous population of North Carolina. The, that's why uh, I was calling them the original main streets. These early trading paths found on these maps, they were the main streets of the state. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, you said that um, they've identified at least 18 Mm-hmm. Now, I'm interested, what kind of records do we have here at the, at the State Archives that show or talk about these trading paths? We actually have quite a lot. Um, however, part of the problem with these early records available to us is that the majority were recorded from a colonial perspective. So most of the records we'll be discussing were government documents written by Europeans. So just keep that in mind. And just by the way, a lot of these records are also largely visual, but many have been digitized and listeners can access them via the show notes. Uh, So the first record we can talk about today uh, is part of our Outer Banks History Center collection. They have a multitude of travel books and surveys from early explorers mapping out the southeast. Uh, But today we're going to start with John Lawson's account. We have a 1967 edition of A New Voyage to Carolina by John Lawson, which was originally printed in 1709. Beginning in 1700, John Lawson famously began a voyage through the previously unexplored interiors of Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina, and he published those experiences in the 1709 book. Uh, So his exact route has never been, like, exactly replicated, Uh, Based on his descriptions, it's kind of hard to to tell where exactly he went, but based on the known locations and other landmarks and clues, the general path has been plotted, and it looks like his voyage seems to have taken place, at least in some part, on the Great Trading Path, Um, and that's especially near the Trading Fort on the Yatkin and the Eno River Hillsborough area. Um, The Great Trading Path was one of the most commonly referred to trails in our records and was also called the Okanichi Path. It was originally a series of minor, shorter footpaths that ran through the Piedmont on North Carolina, but when the fur trade took off in the mid-1600s, it became much more established. Um, It ran southwestward from Petersburg, Virginia to Charlotte, North Carolina, and then it split into two different paths that ran through South Carolina. And it was so popular and well-established that the general route of this path is still used today in the form of Route I-85. Yeah, I mean, that's that's fantastic. And, and as a quick disclaimer, of course, these towns, the Petersburg, Virginia and Charlotte, North Carolina, um, they're towns that we know today, we know well today. But uh, of course, they were not originally on the trading path. John Lawson would not have seen them. But that's what that's ha- right. that happens is they popped up over time. Mm-hmm. And what else is interesting is that John Lawson, the man who made his claim to fame by being one of the first European settlers to cut through the quote unquote wilderness of the Carolina backcountry, 
He was just actually walking along the same path that native peoples had traveled for centuries. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not. It's not new. He's he's he he saw something and took it. It's right. a different story. <laughs> um, and he's not the only one who's done that. Explorers John Lederer in 1670 and James Needham and Gabriel Arthur in 1673 also used portions of this trail along some of their treks. Right. And also uh, William Byrd, when he was doing a survey of the North Carolina-Virginia border in 1728, he also used parts of these trading paths for his uh, survey. And so, you know, and then you look at the, the settlements, the earliest settlements of the so-called backcountry, which we now know was pretty well traveled. But mm-hmm. let's let's continue uh, of North Carolina. They, they included cities all along this path, like Charlotte and Salisbury and Winston-Salem and Greensboro and, and Hillsboro. Right. Speaking of that I-85 route, didn't a lot of other trading paths become major highways over time? Yes, they did actually. Um, well, that may be a bit of a s- oversimplification. There's, you know, some academic uh, back and forth about it. But many of to North Carolina's modern highways do follow routes that were first Indian trading paths. Um, for example, Highway uh, 158, which runs east to west from Kill Devil Hills to Moxville, was once used as a path that connected the uh, the natives of the Al- Albemarle with the Cherokee and other tribes along the way. Um Highways 10 and 70 follow the path of another trail that was called the Great Central Coast Road. And uh, these also include highways 1, 15, 29, 64, and 74. You can especially see this comparison when you look at one of the maps in our custody. Uh, and this is the shortened title. The, the original one is actually very long, but an accurate map of North and South Carolina with the roads and Indian paths. Uh, this was a 1775 map that shows several marked trading paths, the major and minor ones. And when you compare it to a modern highway map, they do look very similar. Yeah, and the longer title will be available in the show notes for anybody to, to come in and look at. And then if you do come in and look at this map, you will see that many of these paths, they don't just stay in what we know as North Carolina. Of course, indigenous peoples did not think of it as North Carolina, obviously. So what they, they, they just extended as far as they could go. You know, It right. goes through Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Virginia. And it it highlights how interconnected the peoples of North Carolina were with the rest of the Southeast and North America. Yeah, and how important the trading path were as um, means of travel and as landmarks. Uh, Once you become aware of these paths, it's really interesting. You'll start to notice them mentioned or illustrated in all sorts of records from the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, For example, they often appear in land grants, in the property descriptions and plats. Uh, We have an example from uh, Orange County here, which was recorded in 1758 for Michael Sennett. Uh, The survey includes a small drawing of the square parcel of land with landmarks. There's a small hill towards the bottom left marked Mount Misery, elevation 80 feet. And there's an even smaller hill to the right of the plat and a small creek running around Mount Misery between the two hills. Uh, which is marked Buck Quarter Creek. <laughs> what a name, though. Mount Misery. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Keep going. Would not want to live around there. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, not. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting. You don't really find this high level of uh, illustrative detail on these land grants. So it's really interesting to look at. Um, through this level of detail, it's it's possible to trace this location on a modern map. Um, and I, actually, I don't know if I mentioned, there's also a line marked trading path that goes across yeah, <laughs> the good. area. Yeah, that's good. the main portion of this. Yeah, um, <laughs> But you can you can juxtapose a terrain map of this same area, and we've done that in the show notes. Uh, you'll see the higher elevations of the two hills and the lower quadrants, um, the Buckwater Creek running around the larger one, 
And then there's a modern road running through the map in the same location as the marked trading path on the land grant. And today that road is St. Mary's Road, or State Road 1002. Uh, this was also a section of the Okanichi Path, or the Great Trading Path. Um, Fantastic. So we will, we'll, the Great Trading Path, it sounds like it was one of the more popular oh. of these paths. And, and we'll learn more about that after this short break. Are you interested in supporting the State Archives of North Carolina? For just $35 tax-deductible dollars per year, you can receive discounts for merchandise, gain access to annual meetings with renowned historical speakers, and connect with a network of professional and lay historians, all the while supporting the services, activities, and programs of the State Archives. Learn more at foanc.org. We're back here with, uh, with this discussion of trading paths, and we were just about to talk about the great trading path. Let's hear more about it. Yeah, uh, before that, I did just want to mention um, Mark Chilton, the current Register of Deeds of Orange County. He was uh, very helpful when researching the Orange County land grants. He has been working on a long-term project with the trading paths through that county um, and using the land grants. And, and you can read his article about it, Tracing the Trading Paths, which was um, published in 2014. So just uh, thank you, Mark Chilton, for your help on that. Uh, but yeah, the Great Trading Path was definitely one of the more popular of these. It ran right through the state, so it was easy to see why. Um, and uh, and there were so many early settlements in the Piedmont established along this path as well. We, we talked about that a little bit earlier. Charlotte, Salisbury, Winston-Salem, Greensboro, Hillsboro. And, and there's actually an interesting theory about these. Um, there's some arguments about whether these towns were settled where they were specifically because the trail was there or if the trail was there and more established because the locations were so ideal for settlements. Gladys Rebecca Dobbs from UNC Chapel Hill actually wrote her uh, 2006 dissertation about this exact topic. Uh, it was published in 2007 originally, if anyone's interested in learning more. Uh, that was called The Indian Trading Path and Colonial Settlement Development in the North Carolina Piedmont. Uh, and I think it was updated in 2023 as well. Wow, 2023. That's I mean that's recent, and and of course we'll have a link to this in the in the show notes for everybody to to go back and do the research. But it's I think it's really fascinating to think about. I would probably I, not having read that particular dissertation. I I I would lean towards the trail was sort of first, yeah, and then settlements popped up. You know, there's a theory that I heard that you know settlements popped up. If you look at the map today, mm -hmm. even. The distances between these towns are such that it is exactly how far a person would t go with their luggage and, and all of that. And so that makes sense that then a settlement would pop up there. Yeah. But the, the path has to come through first. I mean, yeah, I I'm definitely leaning towards the great trading path uh, was essential before the settlements were there. She talks about the Piedmont Crescent area where all these kind of major metropolitan areas were. It's right along the trading path. I mean, the trading path had to have come first, right? It had to have been why. Anyway, that's just me, though. I'm sure <laughs> academics can talk about that more. <laughs> uh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. There'll, there'll be articles and articles on that, I'm sure. So, yeah. yeah so that, that I mean, that's a, that's a, it's really good information about, about this, this trading path. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, the great trading path, uh, that's, on, that's just one of, you know, these 18 that we've talked about earlier. And it's not the only one that's mentioned in our records. 
in our TNC papers. Uh, what are those, by the sorry, way? Sorry, Treasurer and Comptroller. Uh, I do the acronyms a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. There's an interesting report from Rowan County resident Jacob Nichols, who was requesting reimbursement for costs incurred when burying Cherokee Chief Sallow uh, and caring for his horse. That was in November of 1770. And in that record, he stated that Chief Sallow became sick while journeying from Virginia back to Cherokee lands and stayed at his home. And so while the exact path he was talking um, about was not listed here, he could have been traveling on several portions of trails that run from Virginia to the west of North Carolina, including the Oconee Path, Rutherford's Trace, or the Old Cherokee Path to Virginia, among possible others. That's really interesting. So we're not sure exactly what path he, he took, but but surely he wasn't just going cross country. And surely I he would, was taking. It would make sense. He was taking path. one of those established trails, exactly. right? <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. There's also mention of an unnamed path used by the Cherokee in our British records uh, in the minutes of the Board of Trade of Great Britain from 1730. Um, the, the quote from that treaty is the nation of the Cherokees shall on their part take care to keep the trading path clean and that there be no blood in the path where the English white men tread, even though they should be accompanied by other people with whom the Cherokees are at war, whereupon we give 400 pounds weight of gunpowder. Um, and that whole document can actually be found on Dock South. So the exact path isn't mentioned here either, but in 1730, there were dozens of trails crisscrossing the mountain region of North Carolina, like the Catawba Trail, the Unicoi Turnpike, and the ones mentioned a moment ago. So this treaty could have been discussing any one of those. This treaty is is really interesting to me. I think it's the especially the quote you pulled out. It's 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 basically saying that we c- if somebody goes with us, then then nobody can touch them. Yeah, it's, like we're allowed to use it, right? Right, right. <laughs> it's really fascinating. And and they did um the the Cherokee did agree to the treaty's terms. By the way, in a later agreement uh, in 1730, they did agree to keep it free for them to use. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So we've established these Indian trading paths were essential for travel and trade in uh, pre-colonial and colonial North Carolina. How have they changed over time? Well, several of these trails, as we've mentioned, turned into main roads, which turned into railroads, which turned into highways. Uh, Some fell out of use, like uh, the Warrior's Path, uh, which was also called the Great Wagon Road. That ran from Philadelphia through North Carolina and then further south. And uh, some portions do still exist in highway form in Virginia and Maryland. Um, I think that's State Highway 11. Uh, But there's no state or federal road that follows the original route in North Carolina, unfortunately. However, um, some portions do still exist in their original form, uh, which is interesting. And they're part of the North Carolina trail system. Uh, like the the West Point Trail System, which is part of the Mountain to Sea Trail, which we talked about in our last episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that includes a section called Buffalo Trail, which was a portion of an Indian trading path in the 18th century. And it was later used as a farm road in the 1800s. So, yeah, they still exist in a lot of different forms today. Sure. And, and you know, we're talking about trails. We talked about I-85 earlier today and, mm-hmm. and modern day, uh, you know, uses of these roads. We talk about I-95 for for uh, a moment uh, in one of in one of the oral histories we've done for the American Indian Heritage uh, Commission collection uh, with Greg Richardson he he's a, a Halawas Saponi individual and he was talking about growing up knowing that his family and fam- the fa- other families in the tribe they would use I95 as a as as a working trail for them to go up and work in places like 
Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Richmond, even as far as Philadelphia, and, and I think he mentioned New York, but definitely those other cities I mentioned, that they would go work, and then they would come home in North Carolina, the men would, they would work construction. All right. Th this, this was, this, they were using a modern trail that was built on a trail that, that, used, some, to that, be, that yeah. used to be there and that their ancestors would have used. It's really fascinating. That is, and yeah. We're going to include a, a brief clip from his oral history that, that you can listen to. That started to expand because farming was really not something that you could make a really good living on. Our farm was only like four, uh, four, three, four acres of tobacco, a couple acres of corn, and so you couldn't sustain a family on that. So just about everybody in the community had to farm their parcel, but they also worked somewhere else to sustain the family. So from uh, Virginia Beach uh, for Newport News area from the shipyard, uh, there was a migration over to Richmond and then a migration up to Washington, D.C. Huge migration to Washington, D.C. when the high-rise buildings were starting to be built in the 60s uh, up in Washington, D.C. So a lot of Hawasaponi had multiple skills. So what one would do is go and try to get a job at you know, company X, company Y. Daniel's Construction Company was a big uh, attraction for a lot of people from home. One or two people would get on board and then the company would say, bring us some more carpenters, bring on some more, bring on some more cement finishes, bring some more laborers. And so through that, uh, starting I'd say uh, 64, 65 in there, there was a huge migration of our people not moving to Richmond, uh, not moving to Washington, D.C., but commuting back and forth. We didn't know it was called commuting, but uh, people drove back and forth. They would leave the community on Sunday afternoon. So there's a, one or two spots in the community where on Sunday afternoon after church, usually between 4 and 6 o'clock, there was a collection of people parked at a local store right there in Hollister. And what was happening is, uh, there were people who would be more or less um, uh, their turn to drive, you know, to Washington, D.C. or Richmond. So everybody would collect there and carpool. We didn't know it was called carpooling then at all. It wasn't. It was just getting a ride. So fill the car up, trunk up. Everybody cruises up to Richmond or Washington, D.C. and work all week, get their paycheck, come back on Friday. And so through that, our community started to change a lot from that. So you saw a huge uh, uh, amount of new homes going up in the communities, uh, all throughout our community. And uh, uh, so uh, our male heads of household would commute, make that money, bring it back home, and build, either build onto their homes or uh, new, complete new construction. And from that um, evolution, people started going up to Baltimore. And so Baltimore uh, uh, was an, another transition site. And uh, right there in Baltimore, a lot of our folks went there and they would stay, uh, instead of commuting back and forth because of the distance, they would, they would actually stay up there two weeks or whatever the case might be. It's really, it's really interesting to think about the fact that, you know, these, these trails, are they're not they don't only connect us from point to point geographically from from in, in the here and now but they definitely connect us 
to the past through generations right and it they may look different it may be it may look used to look like a dirt road used to look like a railroad now looks like an interstate yeah Yeah. but they still connect us in all kinds of ways yeah so i really appreciate um i really appreciate thank you i really appreciate (laughs) this um look into our our you know connection to the past through these trails and all the research you've done and you know it's a great little waypoint on our journey through this year of the trail right yeah thanks for having me here yeah absolutely and thank you again for tuning into a another production of connecting the docks stay tuned for the next episode where we will conclude our look at the year of the trail with an interview with a surprise guest but until then, I will, in, I will spend that time now thanking uh, my guest here today, Katie Crickmore. Thanks again. Mm-hmm. And then I'll thank former member Brooke Chuka and intern Annabeth Poe for research on this episode. To our producers, Josh Hager, Shauna Carr, Danielle Shrilla, and Sherry Miller. And I'd also like to give a, uh, a great thanks to... Quinn Godwin of the American Indian Heritage Commission for connecting us to Tom Magnuson, who provided great resources and information on the trails. He's, he, he runs a website about the trails. And I, would, I would highly encourage anybody to look him up. And of course, thanks to the voice you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, Judy Allen Dotson. I'm your host, John Horan. We hope you enjoyed this episode of season four of Connecting the Docs. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People. Music